The following is a recording for Kayvon Chenishian with the Atlantic Council of the U.S. on Friday, June 24, 2016 at 9 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Excuse me, everyone. We now have Mr. David Enser, Executive Vice President of External Relations of the Atlantic Council on the line to start the call. Please be aware that each of your lines is now in a listen-only mode. At the conclusion of the initial comments, we will open the floor for questions. At that time, instructions will be provided on how to ask a question. I would now like to turn the call over to Mr. Enzer, who will be offering some introductory remarks. Mr. Enzer, you may begin. Thank you very much. Welcome to Atlantic Council members and journalists who are joining us on this call this morning. Uh, we're really delighted to host this, uh, and this is an understatement, a very timely discussion. Uh, the morning after a truly historic vote by the British people to leave the European Union. The margin for leaving was 52% to 48, reflecting a nation that is obviously deeply divided. On our website, you can read a commentary from our fellow John R. Roberts titled, The Disunited Kingdom. Prime Minister David Cameron, who favored staying in the EU, has announced he will resign within the next few months. The leader in Scotland has announced that she is leaning towards possibly holding another independence referendum in Scotland soon. My colleague Damon Wilson here at the Council has called yesterday's vote, quote, an enormous earthquake that will have many aftershocks. What will this mean for Britain, for Europe, for the U.S. relationship with the U.K., for the world? We have with us today a knowledgeable and distinguished panel of experts, so let me now turn it over to our moderator, Claire York, who's a non-resident fellow at our Scowcroft Center for International Security. Claire has worked at different times for the British Parliament, for Chatham House, the UK think tank, and she's currently working on her doctorate at King's College. Claire, could you uh, briefly tell us about our speakers and take over? Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, good afternoon from London, and good morning, DC, and welcome to everybody who has joined this call. Um, I call in with a sense of disbelief at the result, in all honesty. Um, and although David's just given a brief preview of what's happened, I think it's a shock to all of us that we awoke to news that Britain has voted 52% in favor of leaving the EU and 48% in favor of Remain. After four years of membership, we will be leaving the Union, it seems. Um, and as David has already said, the Prime Minister has resigned. Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland has already said a second referendum is on the table. There are talks that there may be challenges um, in the Labour opposition to the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and more generally, the European Union has said in response to the vote that there will be no renegotiation um, as they seek to stop this from causing further referendums across the Union and further challenges to the community. In the markets, the pound has dropped to levels not seen since 1985, and though it is likely to rally as the dust settles, it points to an incredibly turbulent economic time ahead, not just for the UK, although obviously it's going to hit us hard here. There were big divides in the vote, revealing a genuine disconnect between London, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, and large swathes of the country. It revealed a disconnect between wider society and the political elite and expert establishment. And as a non-resident senior fellow of the Atlantic Council and an enthusiastic European, this vote for me undermines, as you can probably tell, the positive vision I have of Britain and the world as a bridge with Europe and as a strong, vibrant and valued player in the international system. I have been alarmed by the tone of the discourse, the rejection of expertise within the debate, and I'm increasingly conscious of the need to really rebuild some of the political um, connections between the establishment and society that have really been revealed during the course of this campaign. I know many share this view, and also that there are many on the other side who believe this offers a new opportunity to engage with the world in a different way outside of what they view as the constraints of Europe. There will be many different views, and they will be shared and explored over the coming weeks. Um, as the coverage today suggests, for those of you who have been glued to the rolling news, there's a lot of mixed emotions about what has happened and what will now take place. We're all here to discuss the implications of this vote, and I'm really delighted to be joined on this call by three excellent speakers. Um, we have um, Ambassador Sir Peter Westmacott, who's the former British Ambassador to the United States. Um, from January 2012 to January 2016. He has had a 40-year career in the diplomatic service, including in France in 2007 to 2012 and Turkey from 2002 to 2006. We're joined as well by Natalie Nogerud, a columnist, leader writer and foreign affairs commentator for The Guardian, 
Um, she was previously executive editor and managing editor of the flagship French paper Le Monde until 2014, has covered um, Eastern Europe and Soviet Union, among many other things, and began her career with liberation. Um, we're finally joined by Ambassador Richard Morningstar, who's a former U.S. ambassador um, to the European Union, who's also involved heavily within the work of the Atlantic Council in its Global Energy Center, which he helped to found and direct. Um, so it's a very distinguished panel, and I'm going to ask each of them to share with me for two or three minutes each their gut reaction and initial <coughs> thoughts on this result. I will then ask the operator to open the line for questions. Um, so if you would like to ask a question, that will be your opportunity to um, dial in. And I will then start some questions of my own while that takes place. So I first want to turn over the first opportunity to speak to Ambassador Sir Peter Rostamakot. Uh, well, good morning, everybody, um, depending on which part of the world you're in. Uh, thank you, Claire. I think this, this is an earthquake uh, here in London, where I'm speaking from. I think that even though the polling suggested in advance that this was going to be a, a close-run thing, the bookmakers didn't really think it was going to be that close. And there was a sense, perhaps this is part of the problem of the bubble of London, the southeast, but I think there was a, a sense that the innate conservatism of the British people would, again, lead them to vote in a referendum uh, to be part of the European Union and to stay there. Well, that was not to be, even though at midnight last night the pound went up to a dollar fifty. Uh, it looked as though the Remain vote was going to win, and a lot of people went to bed thinking it's going to be close, but it looks okay. Well... For those of us who think that this is the wrong answer for the future of Britain and for the future of Europe and for the future of a lot of other things, uh, it didn't turn out like that. And so we awoke with a nasty shock this morning. I think it is partly about a sense in the United Kingdom that the institutions of the European Union uh, are not working properly, even though the United Kingdom is to some extent insulated from the effects of what's going on in Europe, or insulated from the Eurozone crisis, or insulated from, to some extent the migration crisis, because we're not a Schengen country. But the Brits are very attached to this concept of sovereignty. They don't like the idea that you've got people who they think are telling them how to run their lives in Brussels, who are unelected and can't be fired and unaccountable and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that is a, a rich vein, if you like, of discontent that the, the leaving uh, camp, the Brexiteers, have been able to exploit. There was quite a lot of misinformation, frankly, as well. People talked about a European army, which was not going to be created. They talked about Turkey being about to join the European Union, bringing in 80 million uh, additional people with the right to live and work throughout the EU. That wasn't true either. Uh, they talked about uh, 350 million pounds net transfers each week to Brussels from the European, from the United Kingdom. Not true. So lots of misinformation. And um, in the end, those who were countering that and who were saying that the right thing for Britain, for Europe, for stability, for prosperity, and countering some of the nonsense that was talked about immigration, so those arguments did not prevail. It wasn't a division on party lines, conservatives against Labour. There were strong divisions within both those political parties. It was, however, a division, I think, on geographical lines. That is to say, the southeast, all of the London area voted very heavily for staying in Europe. Scotland voted heavily to stay in. Uh, but Wales did not, and much of the Midlands and the dispossessed, disadvantaged, angry um, parts of Middle England which feel that they've had a bad deal since the meltdown of 2008 and that the political establishment isn't really listening to them. Not dissimilar from some of the people who are tempted by the prospect of a President Trump in the United States. Now, these people came out in large numbers uh, and voted strongly and heavily uh, for the United Kingdom to leave. So the result is this morning there's quite a shock, quite an earthquake. We're beginning to wonder what it means. The markets are shocked and stunned. Uh, and we've now got a lot of work to do here in the United Kingdom to, I would put it in terms of uh, limiting the damage and ensuring that confidence in the future of the UK as a serious business partner and a good place to invest uh, is not unduly damaged. I think that's enough by way of introduction for me. I could go on for hours, but I won't. <laughs> that's excellent. Thank you ever so much, Ambassador Weston. I'd now like to turn to Natalie Nogared to provide some of her ideas and insights on this and what this means. Yes, thank, thank you very much for, for bringing me in, into this conversation. Um, I'm in London right now, um, and I, so good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are. Um, I think um, my takeaway right now is, 
is, is, is mostly about the ripple effect that this uh, vote will have on Europe, across Europe. And it, it, it will probably be very tempting for many people to think that, yes, the UK is, has always been a very different, a very specific part of the European project that came in late. It's, it's, ha it's had uh, a special status. It has a special status. It negotiated all these opt-outs for itself. And um, all, you know, all these comments that have been made about the specific, the, the, the taste for the high seas and not being um, so much in Europe as of Europe, um, all these things are true about Britain and, it would, and, um, and they will be said. But it would be, uh, I think, a, a serious mistake uh, to think that this is a one-off, that, um, that this is a, a, one, a one isolated uh, demonstration of rejection of the European project. Um, there are forces at work on the continent that will benefit from this vote. They're already making that very, very um, clear and, and in a loud way. We've heard statements from Marine Le Pen in France. We've heard statements from Gert Wilders in the Netherlands. And there will be more, more such um, demonstration of populist, um, you know, hubris, if you like. Um, so I, I think that if European leaders who are getting ready to, to gather in, in Berlin, in Brussels, and who are already um, saying that, um, you know, we will, we will continue whatever, we will pursue this European project, Nevertheless, this is a devastating blow, but we will continue. I think if they stop at that, if that's the main um, thing that they have to say to citizens across Europe, it simply won't do the trick. There has to be a deep rethink. There has to be a, a rebuilding, uh, literally a rebuilding of the European project from ground up, not from top down, but from ground up. And I, I'm not sure I know how how that can be, you know, materially organized, but I think that this is where minds now have to try, try to meet and people have to gather and think about this and try to see how they can restore the connection between the European project itself and citizens across, across all the, all the, all the, the 28, 27 countries, 27 countries certainly. Um, and this is going to be a very big task. Um, because we have been in denial for many years. Um, in my country, France, there was a referendum in 2005 um, uh, rejecting the project of the European Constitution, um, and that also happened a few days later in, in the Netherlands. And this, is, this, this was a watershed which I think the establishment, and including the mainstream media in France, failed to assess in all its dimensions. And the, what has happened in Britain is, is, is a, is a late, later echo of this phenomenon that has been at work. And it has to do with many things. It ha obviously has to do with how globalization has affected middle class um, people across Europe, a, a sense of loss of identity, a sense of loss of the way of life, the way, the way we used to know it. Um, and um, I think it has to do also with, with a crisis of, of democratic, uh, the, the very workings of democratic um, institutions and, and representation. And the EU has failed to convince people that it does carry that democratic dimension. And this is, this is what needs to be rebuilt. It would be um, delusional, I think, to start thinking about deepening integration. And I've I've seen comments coming out of France just recently saying we need, we need to head forward, we need to, um, you know, pick up the pieces and just rush forward towards more integration. I think that's, um, that's a dangerous message right now because I think it will be rejected. And as for, as for the, the U.S. and the transatlantic relation, um, which I'm sure we'll dwell on much more, but just one comment. I think, um, I think the United States equally needs to rethink um, its, its approach to Europe. There's been uh, a certain distance, um, and uh, I, I've heard comments in recent months about, oh, well, Europe is a mess. I've heard this from people quite high up in the, in the administration, and I, I think saying Europe is a mess is just not enough. The U.S. should see this, um, this British referendum as, as a signal that it needs to re-engage 
um, with Europe and find new ways of re-engaging with Europe. Um, um, the traditional way of, of doing things um, will not be sufficient. Um, deploying new resources and forces uh, for NATO is, is in very important, very important. But there has to be some kind of plan and thinking about what, what can the U.S. do about, about the European project and the state of the European continent. And that's a tricky thing because, of course, it, will be, it, it could well be uh, perceived as, as, as a degree of meddling. You have to be aware that there's growing, I believe there's growing anti-American sentiment in Europe. It's not, it's not making huge headlines, but it, it is something that has evolved in recent years. Um, it's, it's about the general uh, sense of uh, dissatisfaction with the way the West has been behaving itself. It's, it's also plugged into the whole debate about things like digital surveillance. We've seen how um, uh, Barack Obama's visit to the UK uh, uh, just weeks ago uh, did not do, did not, was not sufficient to, to harness a British support for the European project, and that needs, to, you know, that that needs to be dwelled on. That needs to be um, that mm. we need to pause and think about why this this didn't work, and why it may not work, um, or further messages may not work. Official, mm. high-level messages may not be sufficient to to keep Europe from uh, dismantling this this EU project. Um, I'll stop there, but um, those are my earlier thoughts. Thank you ever so much. And that leads us perfectly into Ambassador Richard Morningstar, who, as former U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, can perhaps give some of those reflections on how he views the situation and how America and Britain really re-engage and how America and Europe continue to engage following some of those issues that you just raised as well. So, Ambassador Morgan, Morningstar. Well, uh, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Claire. And I... Uh, uh, agree very much with Natalie's uh, last, most of what Natalie said, but certainly her last comments about the importance of uh, strong engagement uh, between the United States and Europe. You know, I, I woke up this morning after a few hours sleep. I was, like most of us, I'm sure, was up quite late last night, and I felt like I was waking up from a bad dream, uh, but uh, I guess it's real. Uh, but I think the most important thing uh, that we can uh, uh, do right now is uh, just to take a deep, a deep breath and uh, uh, start thinking rationally about uh, how, things, uh, how things can move forward from here. Uh, I thought, by the way, the statement by the governor of the Bank of England uh, this morning was really very good, uh, very rational, very calm, and, and gave some confidence that uh, Britain uh, is in a position uh, to... Uh, to manage, uh, to manage this situation. Uh, I'd like to make maybe three points in three general areas. Uh, the biggest concern, at least that I've always had, I know a lot of people have always have had with respect to the possibility of Brexit, is the uncertainty uh, that it would create. The years of negotiations uh, that will, uh, that will take, uh, take place. And the, to me, one of the biggest issues now is how to manage that uncertainty. Uh, there's, there will be, as many have pointed out, no immediate change uh, in the relationship. On the other hand, from a business standpoint, there's nothing that businesses hate worse than uncertainty. And the, uh, and the concerns would be uh, uh, a drop-off in investment in Britain, moving uh, companies moving out of uh, Britain to be part of the, uh, to be sure to be part of the single market, the movement of financial service companies, uh, and and the like, uh, and how to manage that and how to engender confidence that uh, Britain will be okay and to stay, I think is going to be very important because otherwise it could, I think there could be a very uh, significant. Uh, economic effect. One of the concerns that I have as to the negotiations that will take place over the next few years is how will the EU react in these negotiations? How accommodating uh, will the EU be uh, to, uh, uh, to Britain? And uh, you know, I, I could make the argument that the EU could take on a, could take a pretty tough stance because, uh, uh, to put it, you know, to put it bluntly. If, uh, if, if Britain has problems and if it, it's shown to have been a mistake, that could help uh, 
could help mitigate uh, the domino effect uh, with respect to uh, other countries. So this is going to be something that is going to be uh, very, uh, very important, uh, I think, to watch. And if, in fact, and the obvious thing, I guess, if things go well in the negotiations and they go quickly and it ends up that Britain's sort of in a Norway situation with a part of the single market, but then being you know, basically forced to comply with EU regulations, to comply with freedom of movement of persons and the like, then you say, well, what's Britain gained from all of this? So the alternatives all have, uh, 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 all have uh, difficulties. Uh, a point on the foreign policy side, um, you know, we're always going to have a special relationship with Britain, no matter what. I don't think there's any question on that, about that. But the question is, how effective can that relationship be? And will Britain, as a result of this, become more isolated uh, from a foreign policy standpoint? One clear area where the relationship or the foreign policy cooperation will be diminished is will be in connection with European affairs. Europe is Europe and the U.S. are the strongest. Uh, you know, Europe is our strongest partner uh, in dealing uh, in dealing with global issues and dealing with a whole lot of issues. And Britain has been such a staunch ally, working with us even within the EU uh, to come up with policies that are coordinated and consistent. And uh, uh, Britain just won't be won't be part of that. At least certainly. Certainly not as an uh, certainly not as an insider. Hopefully, Britain will still continue to be able to cooperate on uh, with with the continent on uh, counterterrorism issues, on security issues. The NATO relationship, as we talked earlier, is going to be be very important. So that's a whole other area. The third point, last point, I would make to open up is, well, what about the EU? Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, this has to be. Uh, a wake-up call uh, to the EU. And I agree with earlier comments that the, any idea of rushing into further integration is, uh, uh, at this point anyway, uh, is, is not going to help. And that, that the EU and Brussels have to work with the member states uh, to develop uh, more transparency, to develop more confidence among the citizenry of these states. But at the end of the day, that's going to only happen if the EU comes up with the right policies and doesn't come, ac come across as being overly technocratic and bureaucratic, uh, uh, would, you know, addresses some of the legitimate grievances uh, that uh, have come up as, as, part of, as part of this debate. But, you know, the real problem in Europe overall is, is growth uh, and, uh, and migration, and these are very difficult issues to deal with, uh, but that's going to be the challenge uh, the challenge for Brussels, but uh, uh, whatever, however, and I don't have the answers to all of this, but however, uh, whatever decisions are made, they have to be communicated, there has to be transparency, and to create a feeling among member states and their citizens that uh, the EU does care about them. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'd like to ask the operator to open the line for questions, if you could. Thank you. At this time, we will be opening up questions. Please press the star key, followed by the one key on your touchtone phone now. Questions will be taken in the order in which they are received. Be sure to introduce yourself when asking a question. If at any time you would like to remove yourself from the questioning queue, please press star 2. Okay. Thank you. So please, please do submit your questions. And I wanted to just start them off. Um, one of the interesting things I think that is revealing is the demographic differences in the vote. You had a huge proportion of young people, under 24 in particular, voting in favor of Remain, and a huge number of those who are over 65 voting in favor of Leave. What do you think that means for the differences in generational approaches to European Union, and particularly for the future of the younger people who now may not get some of the opportunities that future generations, that previous generations had? Who are you asking, Claire? Um, can, I, can I ask you, Ambassador Weston, I realize you go as well early. You'll be leaving the call slightly yeah. early, so I'll ask you first. Well, I think uh, the reaction of many of the young, and that's not just the 
18 to 25 year olds, but also my own children in their 30s, for example, mm -hmm. uh, is a, a sense of fury. Uh, how could people be so irresponsible and dumb and so misled, if you like, by a lot of what they would mm -hmm. regard as misinformation? And these are, this is not a generation which is wildly enamored with the concept of ever closer union. This is just a hard nosed generation who are struggling uh, quite often to get jobs, make ends meet, find uh, somewhere to live. Uh, and they are pretty clear in their own minds that the economic and broader benefits of Britain being part of the European Union are very clear. So I think there's a degree of, of, of rage and discontent amongst the young. Uh, and I think it's because they have got the future in front of them. Why is it that the over 65s voted so strongly in, in favor of leave? Well, I'm not entirely clear. Maybe they're more susceptible to some of the, in my view, often bogus arguments about immigration. Uh, the fact is that uh, immigration, net immigration from the rest of the European Union has been a plus for the economy and has helped to keep costs down and has not been a drain uh, on our entitlement system. And to the extent mm -hmm. that we don't like uh, the cost of immigrants who come from outside the European Union, well, staying in the EU would have given us the right to continue to control our national frontiers just as much or as little as we have in the past. So there was quite a lot of nonsense, frankly, talked about that mm -hmm. issue. But I think it may have appealed to the older generation. The older generation ought to be a bit bothered that, uh, and of sterling, but it seems that uh, they, they haven't been. But for whatever reason, uh, that generation is not impressed, if you like, by the surrender of, of sovereignty and the intrusion into their daily lives of directives and, and other instructions which come from Brussels. Almost all of which, of course, as we know, are agreed by the member states themselves. The European mm -hmm. Commission does not have the power of, of uh, legislating and making rules itself. They're all approved by uh, the member states. Nevertheless, there is a lot of perception that Brussels somehow interferes with people's lives. And it, it, is a, it is an impression which, combined with the sovereignty point, uh, and perhaps to some extent a sense that it was time to give all politicians a kick up the backside, uh, that made the older generation feel, well, you know, let's roll the dice, let's take a chance on something mm. different. Um, but I think it's, um, personally, I find it rather harder to draw any more substantive and definitive mm. demographic conclusions than that. Than that. Uh, that's brilliant. Thank you. And I'm conscious we already have a lot of people lining up for questions. I'll ask when you do ask a question, please can you give your name and affiliation and please try and keep it short. We're going to have a lot of people asking questions and we have about another half an hour left. I'd like to call first on Spencer Ackerman, please. Thanks very much. Uh, I was wondering if uh, you see this referendum uh, having any immediate implications for the U.S.-U.K. defense and intelligence relationship. Can I direct that to Ambassador Morningstar, please? <laughs> well, well, we'll see, and I certainly hope not. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, uh, again, things are not going to change uh, immediately uh, with respect to the British-EU relationship. Uh, we'll have, I'm sure, the same cooperation with Britain. Uh, certainly for now, anyway, I would expect that uh, Britain and the European, uh, other European member states in the EU will continue to have uh, the same relationship. So I would like to think that, uh, at least for the uh, foreseeable future, that there would be no change. Now, at some point, depending on Britain's ultimate relationship uh, with the EU, could that could there be an effect? Yeah, maybe, but I don't think right now. Thank you. I would just add the Britain's commitment to NATO. Oh, sorry. No, no, if you like, please go ahead. I, this is Peter Westbrook. Just a very quick uh, addition to that. I would say that the UK's commitment to NATO, uh, the 2% of GDP going on defence spending, and our major programme of new equipment over the next decade, plus our commitment to the nuclear deterrent, which we share with the United States through the Trident missile programme, plus the way in which our agencies and our armed services work closely together, all that I see as being unaffected by this decision, even if in the longer term Britain's role in the world, uh, leaving the European Union, makes people begin to ask some uh, questions. But I think for the time being, we should keep issues of defense, security, and intelligence cooperation and counterterrorism separate from the results of this referendum. Right. We can't forget the NATO relationship. I'd like to now go to Carl Schreck, and after him, I will call on Terry Ridge. Um, over to you, Carl, please, your question. Hi, yes. Uh, Moscow Mayor Sergei Sabyanin today, for some reason, has been tweeting about international affairs, and he says that uh, without Great Britain and the EU, no one will so zealously defend the sanctions against us. 
is this going to greatly diminish uh, EU uh, unity and resolve on maintaining uh, Ukraine-related sanctions against Russia? Um, can I maybe ask Natalie to respond to that one? Well, the UK is, is not, you know, has not today pulled out of the, of the EU, and it's still, it, we, we've said that it's going to be a long process of, you know, negotiating this divorce and negotiating what comes after, what kind of relationship it will have with the EU. We're, we're probably looking at a period of two years, but that period can be uh, renewed um, if there's a consensus in Europe about that. So it, we're looking at a long process. So in the immediate term, um, I don't see I don't see this vote having uh, a, a, an immediate this year effect on on the question of sanctions against Russia, and they they just be pro, being prolonged for six months. Um, but I do think that you know pointing to some of the things that we said about how this would encourage uh, other populist movements in Europe, um, right wing, far right wing, um, and also far left wing movements in Europe um, who have seen the EU as, as a sort of hostile entity uh, to their nations. Um, they, I think that this vote does send that um, message uh, that will inflate those those uh, anti EU attitudes. And on the continent, and these are political forces that we know Moscow has been uh, at times financing and certainly supporting through its propaganda machine. So I think I think it will have uh, a toxic effect on Europe's uh, cohesion and uh, political cohesion in terms of um, dealing with Russia. But over I think time, one of the I think tests will get. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I was just going to add. Uh, so one thing I think is, re is uh, really important uh, is that uh, Britain not withdraw into a shell uh, as a result of this. Uh, and even with the uncertainties as to what the government is going to be and so forth, uh, I think it's important that Britain, uh, given that there are going to be no immediate changes, and there could be psychological effects, but that Britain make every attempt to continue to try to lead to try and uh, work with their European counterparts with respect to uh, foreign policy and to uh, uh, continue to play a major role. And obviously one of the first tests will be the elections in Spain on Sunday. Um, I imagine we might see some implications then. I'd like to now call on Terry Ribbs from Beacon Global. Please um, let us know who you direct your question to. Hi, thank you so much. I was wondering if there's any shorter long-term implications of the Brexit for NATO. Thank you. Would you like to direct that to anyone in particular? Anyone who wants to take it. Okay. Can I ask Ambassador Morningstar, perhaps? Uh, uh, I am, uh, I, I'm not a NATO expert, uh, but I would, uh, again, make the point that nothing is going to change immediately that uh, this, does, this should not affect uh, NATO relationships. And again, I think that uh, it's important that, British, that Britain maintain, maintain an active role uh, and uh, uh, hopefully, certainly for the foreseeable future, uh, that this would not affect the NATO, uh, the NATO relationship. Over the long term, we'll see. It's important that Britain do everything it can not to isolate itself and, being, and its role in NATO is a way to do that. Ambassador Westmacott, would you like to add anything to that? Well, I said my piece just now about nuclear deterrence, about Britain's commitment to NATO. Perhaps the only other thing to add is that I think one of the less helpful uh, red herrings which was produced during the debate was that the uh, European Union was about to produce some European army which was both an infringement mm -hmm. on our sovereignty and national competence for defense and potentially undermining of NATO. That is not about to happen. That is not one of the proposals. That is not something which Britain and France, which are the two principal military forces within the EU, uh, were planning to do. Uh, I hope that wasn't one of the reasons that led people to vote to leave the EU, because it, it just wasn't going to happen. And I think, uh, by the same token, NATO, NATO will not be directly affected by this, and, and nor will the UK's commitment to the Iron. I think what's interesting is the, is the results have come in, and we've process what's happened is seeing the way in which the information given during the election campaign has been changed and we saw this morning Nigel Farage, the leader of UKIP, talk about how actually that 350 million that was assigned to the NHS and a lot of the posters will actually not go to the NHS and people then expressing 
surprise um, that this information was not quite as expected. Um, I'd like to now call exactly. Gordon Adams of American University. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for this very much. Uh, uh, to some degree, I'm struck that the, the tenor of this discussion is very much what I would call the elitist 1% of policy people, uh, which obviously I've been part of. But I wonder if uh, you would comment, particularly Natalie would comment, on the, an mm -hmm. underlying trend that maybe uh, that this election result may show, and that is a kind of political unraveling in industrial democracies uh, with rising disintegration of political parties, divided parties in the UK, with growing uh, nativism, even racism, with resentment and mistrust driven in part by globalism, with a climate of fear. Are we looking here at an underlying political trend uh, in many of the uh, the EU and non-EU countries, including the United States, uh, that foreshadows some really dramatic underlying restructuring of politics itself uh, that this election outcome reflects. Thank you. And I, Natalie, I agree, I agree with that. I, yes, thanks. I, I agree with that. When, when I, you know, there's, there are two phenomenons at work. There's this breakdown of confidence between European citizens and the European project. And that, that, is, that is a big, big task that needs to be addressed. And, but it mirrors, in a way, the breakdown of confidence between citizens and traditional democratic institutions, parties, even trade unions. Trade unions in, in the UK called for, for, for a vote for Remain, and that didn't get through. So there's, we're seeing a, a, a defeat of politics the way we were used to, to seeing them, and we're seeing that defeat in an era of, of indeed, propaganda, um, disinformation, um, uh, and in a way, it's a defeat of reason. You know, this, this vote is, this vote almost amounts to some kind of collective suicide for, for, for a state, a member state um, of, of the EU. And the UK may, may break, break itself, it's Scotland Lee. So we're, we're looking at a, a degree of irrationality and lack of confidence in, um, in the elites, which has deep, deep, deep repercussions. Um, and I think that I think I've been struck by oh, in recent years in traveling across Europe. I've been I've been struck to, by the fact that you, know, you speak about that one percent, but there's there's indeed a very narrow percentage of of, of people who who um, who do you know who think about the larger issues, who are aware of the interactions, of the fact that things going on in one country will affect. Um, events in another country, and there's an incapacity, there's currently an incapacity of elites in Europe, and, and perhaps in the U.S., you're a better place than me uh, to say that, but certainly in Europe there's an incapacity of elites to actually even detect the mood, the very mood of citizens in their own country. Um, there, everybody was in denial about this UK referendum for so long, even, even last night, late, um, until votes came in from the Sunderland region, um, you know, everybody, everybody thought that, um, I don't know if you can hear me. Yes, yes. Yep. Am I still on? Yes, you can. Um, yes. Uh, just, just to wrap up, there, there's been a degree of denial, and I think, I think, um, um, I think that, um, Elites, elites are no longer in touch with what citizens actually feel, and that's, that's a crisis of democracy b before mm -hmm. even a crisis of the EU as an institution. Yeah. There's a corollary to that, and, I, and Gordon, I think, you know, you're, you're clearly right that, uh, um, that we're seeing these kinds of uh, situations throughout Europe and here in the United States, and a lot of people have talked about the similarities between, in some ways, between uh, Trump voters and, and strong and strong Brexit supporters. And it is true, I think, that leaders, uh, the elites, have not recognized uh, legitimate grievances. So the answer is good, constructive leadership, and uh, uh, and and who come up with uh, reasonable solutions to these issues. There have to be leaders that. Uh, uh, not only are you know policy types, uh, but also understand the pulse of the populations and can uh, can engender confidence, whether it be in Europe or the United States. Uh, without that, without that leadership, uh, I, it could well go the way you're the way you're talking about it, Gordon. 
I would, I'm conscious that Ambassador Westermacott has to leave the call very shortly. I just wondered if you had any final comments or thoughts that you wanted to share before you do go. Um, I think not a lot to add. I agree with the comments that others have made. That this is as much about uh, disillusionment with the political status quo, uh, with inequalities, uh, with a sense of politicians saying get elected and then don't do what they're supposed to do, and a continuing sense, I think, in, certainly in America, in Britain, the rise of Trump, the support for Bernie Sanders, all that kind of stuff, and what's been going on here, a sense that it's been the hard-working, tax-paying middle classes who don't feel listened to or that their interests have been sufficiently taken account while those who gave us 2007, 2008 have continued to make you know, hundreds of millions each and none of them have been held accountable and so on. And there's a lot of that narrative which I think lies behind uh, what we're mm -hmm. up against and why there is a rise of uh, fringe parties, fringe candidates in so many Western democracies. I think there is an issue to address there. The last thing I would just add is that, you know, I very much hope that this doesn't prove to be the pulling of a thread on the old jumper. Uh, in other words, mm -hmm. the unraveling of so much that European post-war construction has achieved. There will be pressure. There is pressure for referenda to be held in other member states. Um, but I hope that the way in which people have reacted, markets and others have reacted in the UK, will give people careful thought. Uh, before they charge off in that direction, thinking this is a wonderful idea. I think that's all I've got to say for the moment. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for joining us for the call, though. And I think you touched on something very important, which I know our other two speakers have also hinted at, which is this idea that, it's yes, Europe is viewed as flawed, and there are serious concerns about Europe and the European project, but it also speaks to a far broader problem within society of a discontent, of the sense of disenfranchisement, and a disconnect, really, with the elites and not just the political elites. I think it's quite interesting and revealing that dynamic that's been shown. Um, I'd like to just ask the operator briefly to open the lines again to let other people add their names to the calls and then I'd like to call on Geoffrey Harris from the European Parliament. Thank you. Just as a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, you may press star 1 on your touch-tone phone to ask a question. Thank you very much. And Geoffrey Harris, please, if you ask a question. Good morning, and thank you for the excellent introduction. I'm an official of the European Parliament here in the U.S., but I'm about to retire, but I, I'm not going to ramble off with personal opinions. I just have a specific question. I would have been interested in Sir Peter's views, but certainly Natalie's. This whole question of the generation gap and the... Uh, undiplomatic references made to the anger among young people in Britain at the outcome of this vote. Uh, is this the last word, given the earthquake in the Conservative Party and the likely earthquake in the Labour Party and in Scotland and in Northern Ireland? Uh, is this a question that the British people may, uh, contrary to immediate expectations, be obliged to return to uh, within the coming years, whether in a referendum or a general election? Thank you. Um, Natalie, would you like to take that? That's, that's, a, that's a tough question for me. Um, um, I've, I've had conversations this morning. Um, um, you know, people are asking, can, can, could this be... Could there possibly be a rerun in the future, <laughs> especially if young people wanted to stay in, in the EU? Could, could we sort of repair this down the road? Um, and that's, uh, I, don't, I don't see that happening right now. I don't see, um, I don't see the political class in this country um, getting, you know, getting into marching order to, to make that happen right now. And it's it more, it more, li more likely it looks like a general unraveling, a big crisis uh, in both parties. Um, and, um, and I don't see EU uh, officials or leaders on the continent um, thinking along those lines that, you know, this, this is something that we can somehow fudge and, and hope that, that Britain will come back. Um, right now it's, it's about uh, a messy divorce that is going to start and it's about damage limitation in terms of whether there will be a chain reaction elsewhere in Europe. Um, but I do think that the question of the generation gap is a really interesting one. And, and when, when I said that the EU needed to rebuild, to find a way to rebuild itself from the ground up, I think, that, I think the way that can be done is, is by working, uh, working on that younger generation, working with them. Um, it has to be, 
you know, I grew I grew up in France, and um, we when I in the 80s and in the, in the 90s, we we for us the Franco-German relationship was absolutely sacred. It was all about reconciliation. Mm-hmm. We were we were educated to think about Europe as something that needed to be highly protected, and that, and we you know, there were family school exchanges and. And there were, there were all these mechanisms to hook up people, and we know the we, we know the Erasmus program has had a fairly large impact with with hundreds of thousands of young people in Europe who've benefited from it. We have to think about concrete concrete initiatives and ways of um, building on that support that does exist in Europe from the younger generation. There is support from the younger generation, um, but it's not that solid. You know, I've, I've spent time in Central Europe. Uh, in, in the recent year, and, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of anti-EU sentiment, including among the young people in Central mm-hmm. Europe. I think, as, um, as an aside, it's interesting that already this morning there's been a petition going online um, on the parliamentary website for a second referendum to challenge the vote. I mean, it's just interesting to see the kind of reactions and the backlashes that are taking place already. Would anyone else like to add to that, or should I move on to the next question? Ambassador Morningstar, did you want to add anything? I'll leave, uh, I'll leave discussions of the generation gap uh, in Britain to uh, those more familiar with it. <laughs> Thank you. Can I ask Michael Nelson now from Klaus Blair for his question? Yes. Uh, thank you very much. This has been really enlightening. Uh, Cloudflare is a web security firm, and 20% of our employees work in London. Um, in addition to doing public policy, I'm also a professor at Georgetown of Internet Studies. And one explanation of the generation gap is that younger people were listening to dis- different media than older people. Uh, television is a lot more effective at uh, instilling fear. And you can argue that the Internet often is self-correcting. You can get more facts that way. Any thoughts on how the, the media coverage of this debate influence the outcome and what it teaches us about future debates, both in Europe and the U.S.? Thank you. I'm going to actually call on Natalie again, there, given your background in journalism. Yes, I mean, the, the, um, the, the media coverage, uh, for somebody who's not British, uh, I've, I've, I've kind of, you know, it, it, really, it really took me aback, basically, the, the fact that all the tabloids, most of the tabloids, were rapidly uh, in favor of leaving the EU. Uh, you saw the maybe you saw the front page of the Sun newspaper yesterday, the day of the vote. It was it was a picture of a rising sun in the horizon and the, and one big word, independence on the on the front page. So we've there's been there's been that kind of atmosphere, and these are very powerful newspapers. They they have uh, very uh, widespread distribution. And then there's the question of the disinformation, um, the, which, which is not just disingenuous, but it's also linked to ignorance and, and misunderstanding of the very functioning and very institutions of the EU. Um, it, it, I think it was almost impossible, even for a media organization like The Guardian, where I work, and, and which has you know, deployed a big effort to, to explain the EU, describe what was going on, and, and, and make the case for Remain. I think it was almost impossible to correct in in the in, a, in just a few weeks' time, uh, in the five 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 or six weeks of the campaign, to correct decades of um, of uh, negative comments about about the EU and this country. Um, this the, the, there's, there's, there is a, a, an important responsibility that does rest, I believe, on the Murdoch press as to um, how the EU has been perceived in this country. But I also think that putting all the responsibility on the media and and even not just on the tabloids would would be um, exaggerated and also delusional. Um, In in other countries in Europe where you don't have that same phenomenon of tabloid press as in the UK, uh, in France, uh, to a certain extent in Germany, you don't have that stark anti-EU message coming from very, very popular press. Um, you, you do. You are nevertheless confronted with uh, political movements and a grand swell of, of anti-EU sentiment. So it, it's not enough to just nail it down to the media coverage. Okay, thank you. And can I now ask um, John Sudzinski, please, of Blackstone? Hello. Hello. Could I ask John Sudzinski? Yes. Yes. Hello, it's John here. Uh, can you hear me? 
Yes. Um, uh, thank you very much. This is a very, very uh, helpful call. Um, you know, I sit in London, and I've been here for about 30 years, and, um, uh, you know, there's, and I think the discussion here has been very, very good. One of the things that I think is interesting is in the context of, um, and I'd be interested in whether or not actually this event, um, given that Britain is the fifth largest economy, once they are they renegotiate a model, and it probably will be, I think, a Canadian model more than a Norwegian model. Once they negotiate that, um, whether, in fact, this does more to destabilize Germany and the German economy uh, in the context of the rest of the Europe than it does longer term to destabilize the UK. And I, I'd be interested in any thoughts your, your panel has on that. Thank you. I'm going to direct that one at Ambassador Morningstar, given your experience in the European Union. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to, how to, how to respond to that question. Uh, if, in fact, the Norwegian model ends up being the final, uh, uh, the, you know, the final agreement between uh, Britain and the EU, it really would put things back in a way, I would think, uh, to to where things are now, uh, because Britain would be part of the single market, it would be forced to uh, uh, conform, uh, and uh, uh, and so maybe there would be uh, no real difference. I, we, I take it. Were you saying that you thought it w would be more likely the Canadian model or the Norwegian model? I didn't quite. More get. likely Canadian. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I I mis maybe mis misheard the question. Uh, the Canadian model, uh, what I've heard about the Canadian model is that that will be extremely difficult to negotiate, uh, and that it's taken it's taken years uh, it's taken years to negotiate it, uh, and uh, uh, and it's not totally clear what the end what the end uh, end result would be. Uh, but maybe you could uh, tell us a little more about why you think this would end up having more of a negative effect on Germany, because I frankly haven't thought about it that way. I think one thing that's interesting to note as well is that because Britain's often engaged through the European Union is the lack of many negotiators within the SCO and the organization. But that's one thing people have been saying in London, that we don't have the kind of same number of negotiators that we used to. I don't know whether that's something that will have an implication more broadly for the negotiation process. I'd like to call on Victor Ash. I'm conscious we've just got about seven minutes left on the call, so if I can call on Victor, please. My question is, uh, who is the next British Prime Minister and what's the process? Is it likely to come from the Boris Johnson side of the Tory party or uh, the Cameron side, or is the Tory party going to survive it? Secondly, can the Scots, uh, through uh, Mrs. Sturgeon, call their own referendum, or does it have to get approval of the British Parliament? I will call on Natalie for that one, if that's okay. Um, that's, those are those are tricky questions. Um, the you know the 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 atmosphere and the comments right now are are, are 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 mostly in terms of who who would be the next prime minister. Mostly revolve around Boris Johnson, um, and we, we know this was this was his main goal um, when he decided to side with the Leave camp, um, and so he's he's. Clearly, um, making uh, making an attempt to to reach that high office. Um, uh, some of some people also say that it's not necessarily it wouldn't necessarily be the the guy who seems the most likely to become prime minister. Maybe there will be internal workings in the in the Tory party that would um, that would lead um, to, into another direction. Um, but um, as for the as, as for the uh, Scottish referendum, it was interesting that Nicola Sturgeon, uh, she she was very swift and she was very savvy on on television just a couple of hours ago, um, saying that a referendum, a Scottish referendum, another one was highly likely. So she hasn't she hasn't put a time frame on that. She's playing it carefully, but she's sent out that signal, and um, this is obviously a, a watershed for the, for the United Kingdom. Um, because it seems, with, when you look at the contrast between the voting in Scotland and the rest of the country, um, you really see that there's there's now a dynamic at work, which will make um, the referendum, the 2014 referendum, just you know maybe put the first mm -hmm. step towards 
a genuine independence for Scotland. But maybe, Claire, you have some thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I'm sorry for kind of fielding difficult questions to you both. Um, I'm conscious as well <laughs> that there's, um, the commentators this morning on the television were saying that the way the next minister will be chosen will be through the Tory party membership, which is apparently about 150,000 people. So there's questions about what that will mean. Um, I'm also not sure of the process of how it will be done. Apparently, the candidates will put their name forward, and then two will then be selected from within the party membership to then be the candidates who are then contested. Um, but I don't know what that will mean um, in terms of the mandate they have more widely. Um, and I think it's still uncertain who will stand. I think I, I saw Boris Johnson's press conference earlier, and he certainly, to me, looked like he was positioning himself um, as being the man of vision for unifying the party in the country. That was the pitch that he was making, but I don't know whether that's an accurate portrayal or not. Um, and I imagine other people came back to Theresa May, um, and you could see other members of um, the Tory party not withdrawing their name from the debate as well. So I think it's, it's uncertain at the moment, it's very uncertain. I think the dust will settle. I think we have time as well for a final question from Mindy Weiser from Global Priest Services. Yes, uh, thank you very much. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I wonder what the implications of the voting would have on um, the presence of the United Kingdom and the United Nations and a variety of other organizations in the U.N. family. Thank you. I'm going to direct that to Ambassador Morning, please. Uh, on the... Uh, you know, I, again, I think it, 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 I hope it doesn't, uh, that, and it goes back to the point that, uh, uh, again, I think everybody has to take a deep breath, and for Britain, uh, it shouldn't withdraw, <clears throat> shouldn't withdraw into a shell, and should continue to play a very active role, uh, in the, uh, United Nations, and NATO, and, and, uh, and other international organizations. Ironically, well, I think, you know, question how it will be over the couple of years of negotiations, but uh, there's, all that, there's been a, a tension between member states and the EU as to how much of a united position there should be uh, at the UN. And uh, in some ways, uh, I suppose Britain can be even maybe more independent at the UN at this point. It's, um, I think, Natalie, did you want to of course, yeah, it's, I mean, I, it, it, uh, it, on the face of it, it doesn't affect the, the, the hello, can you hear me? Yes, it doesn't affect yes. the status of the, and the, and the membership of the UK to, 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 the, to the United Nations, nor does it affect, nor, nor would Brexit affect um, the, the um, permanent seat that the UK has on the um, UN Security Council. Um, those, those, those two things have nothing to do with membership of, of the EU. But what might be... Um, you know, if you look down the road, what might um, be affected is, is the capacity of European member states of the UN to work together on things such as, as, such as UN sanctions. You know, on, on Iran, the Europeans worked together on UN sanctions, and European sanctions were important. And um, some of that was decided at the European level, some of it was passed at the UN level, but the dynamics between the EU uh, dimension and the UN dimension were, were, were something that cannot, you know, should not be overlooked. So um, it, there's no pulling out of the UK from the UN or the Security Council, but there may be dynamics, European dyna dynamics within the UN on things like sanctions that could be, could be affected, and that's why... Um, Richard is right to say that it's important that the UK remains engaged and, and, and preserves a strong dialogue with, with its European neighbours. Thank you. And with that, I'd like to draw the discussion to a close. I really want to thank all of our speakers, um, Nafi Nagared, Ambassador Richard Morningstar, and Ambassador Patricia Westmacott, for such a comprehensive, wide-ranging, and rich discussion. I know all of us are trying to process what's happened, um, and I know we're all maybe in that state of shock at the moment about what this means and what the implications are, but I think you've really touched on the very difficult and different and manifold challenges that we now face in terms of domestic politics, in terms of rebuilding um, society, the disconnect that exists, in terms of what Britain will look like in the world, whether it will be much smaller in the longer term, what Europe will have to deal with as well, how it will need to be aware of other 
um, sentiments like this within other co uh, populations in the region and how to maybe contain and manage that. And also in the United States with um, the increasing popularity of Donald Trump and what, what the implications may be more broadly. I think you've touched on so much of these different issues. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'd like to hand over very briefly to David Ensel. Thank you. Thank you so much, Claire. Uh, this has been fascinating. Um, just a quick mention for uh, members and media who are, are still listening in. Uh, we have a pretty interesting conversation that we're staging uh, on Monday at 1.30 uh, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, this will be a discussion about NATO um, and a report that uh, General Jim Jones, the former National Security Advisor, and uh, Nicholas Burns, who's a former Undersecretary of State and a professor at Harvard, have prepared about what they think NATO ought to be doing in the coming period, given all the challenges that it faces. And some of these overlap with the, with the, uh, with the subjects we've been discussing today. So again, 1.30 p.m. Monday Eastern Standard Time, the event will be here uh, in downtown Washington, and it will be streamed live. Thanks to everyone for listening. Goodbye for now. Thank you, everyone, at this time. This concludes today's teleconference. You may now disconnect.